This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Small business owners, listen up. Do you need help managing cash flow, hiring employees, purchasing inventory, or upgrading your office space? Most traditional banks lack the technology and the resources to truly understand a small business, and they'd rather just lend to larger, more established businesses. On Deck is 100% committed to small business owners with fast, easy, and tailored financing. You can get funding in as quickly as 24 hours with term loans up to $500,000, lines of credit up to $100,000, none of which require business collateral. The application process is so simple, it will not impact your personal credit. If you're a small business owner and you need access to capital, go to ondeck.com slash Rome. That's ondeck.com slash Rome right now. As an exclusive listener to this podcast, you will receive a free consultation with one of their U.S.-based loan specialists. You can apply online or by phone and get approved in just minutes. Once again, go to ondeck.com slash Rome. That's O-N-D-E-C-K dot com slash Rome for a free consultation. Do that right now. At our apartment in New York, she had this entertainer and I said, you got to be kidding me. And in walks my favorite comedian, Louis Black. Oh, wow. And Louis is saying, I don't understand this. I played Carnegie Hall. I've been on Broadway and I'm playing Povich's 70th birthday party. Are you kidding me? What the hell happened? Yeah, what the happened? (laughs) Hey now, what's cracking? Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast. I am fired up to introduce this week's guest, Maury Povich. You are the guest for episode 67. That's right, Maury Richard Povich. And you best believe I am going to hit Maury with the full government because I've got that much respect for him. He is over 20 years into his run as the host of the syndicated talk show, Maury. Maury has created one of the greatest genres in all of TV, the DNA testing genre. But Maury has also spent a lifetime as a well-respected journalist. He started his career in radio before becoming a successful TV anchor. He hosted the hit show, A Current Affair, which changed TV as we know it. He also produced an Academy Award-winning documentary. Hell, he was awarded one of the most prestigious awards in all of radio, a 2011 Clone's Choice Award. And he handled that CCA win like an absolute boss, and he did the exact same thing with our pod today. My conversation with the legend, Maury Povich, gets started right now. Maury, it is so great to have you on this podcast. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. I've got to start right here. You celebrated your 20th anniversary with NBC not that long ago with Maury. What an amazing run it's been. What did the anniversary, the 20th anniversary, mean to you? Well, it it meant, you know, I'll tell you what happened was I I had done uh, seven years with uh, Paramount uh, before that. So in all, it was 27 years, and then they told me that uh, that I'm the longest-running consecutive talk show host uh, in daytime. And I went, oh, come on, records? 
I mean, I'd rather be 50 again. Don't tell me this. <laughs> I got you. I understand that. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it, 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 somehow it's just staying power. I mean, you ought to know this. I mean, how long have you been doing your stuff? Yeah, no, I understand that. But I haven't had that kind of run at that kind of level. But you're right. And this is why I want to start right there, because I've got so much respect for that. As somebody who hosts a talk show, I'm now past the age of 40, 50. This, see, I can't even say it. I'm past the age of 50. Boy, this is not easy to do. It speaks to your staying power. So what about a run like that? How do you feel? Why is the show, how has it remained as popular and as relevant as it has for as long as it has? Well, you know, I think it's probably a lot, a lot of what you do. This is the way I've always looked on it. I mean, you know, we have these very major uh, themes that we have on my show, whether it's uh, DNA testing or lie detector tests. And I took a look at it. I take a look at it this way: every single story has its own unique quality, and and I treat everything in terms of storytelling as as this is a whole new day. This is a whole new story, and even though we're going to have a lie detector result or a DNA result at the end of the story, getting leading up to that, uh, each story has its individual qualities, and I, I just treat it that way. No, right. I mean, every single story is different. The individuals are different. It seems to me, though, I mean, you make a valid point, right? I don't want your records. I want to be 50 again. But, <laughs> but, but, Maury, what about this? I mean, when you look at the issues that we're dealing with, infidelity, paternity testing, out-of-control teens, you know, the good stuff, my man, when will those things ever be out of style? You could do this until you're 140. You're just getting started. <laughs> I know people say to, say to me all the time, you know, I said, they say, you know, where do you get these people? I said, are you kidding me? I mean, this is uh, this is part of the American fabric. I mean, this is this is part of our society, and it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter what the socioeconomic uh, story is. It cuts across all those lines. I mean, I'm telling you right now, people watch the show because they're saying to themselves, you know, uh, thank God I'm not in that situation, or guess what? There's somebody in my in my family who's going through the same thing. You know, more to that point where people say to you, where do you get these people? Now, you tell me I'm wrong. It seems to me no one is making anybody appear on the show. They're right. there because they want to be on that show. But frankly, Maury, that has not stopped critics from saying that you're exploiting some of them for our entertainment. I know you've heard that. And I'm curious. Sure. How does that make you feel? And how do you respond to that? Well, this is the way, this is the way I, I, I look upon it, uh, particularly, for instance, without a control uh, teenagers or uh, DNA testing. Uh, if I can get a father who denies a child into that child's life after the paternity test comes back and says that he's the father, and that and that man can get into that child's life, that kid has so much more of a chance of being a success once they be- once they become an adult. And, and I know that. Now that's not going to happen every time. I mean, every father is not going to get into that child's life. And on the other side, how, how about this? How about if you're not the father, you know? And how about, you know, uh, you, you've been kind of betrayed all along uh, because this woman has accused you of being the father, you've raised this child, and it's not yours. I mean, look, I, I, I believe so much, for instance, when a father wants to be a father of a child, but he has a lot of doubt, and the test comes back that he's not the father. But let's say he's been in that child's life for four or five years. Uh, I, I say to that guy all the time, look, uh, you've been a father to this child. Uh, you feel like a father to this child. This, fa- this child is going to need a father. I have a child in my family 
that I'm not the birth father of. He's no less a child of mine than my birth children. And so, therefore, I try to get these fathers to stay in the lives of these kids and raise these kids as if they're their own. You know, and then in addition to that, more you've talked about the fact that the paternity show is actually Shakespearean in nature. Let me ask you this. When you see a guy who finds out he's not the father and he's celebrating like he just caught the game-winning touchdown right. of the Super Bowl, right. do you think on some level, I guess I understand why he might be acting like that, or does it strike you maybe as bad form? Well, you know, and, you know I think it's always bad form if the mother really thought that the guy was the father. And, and you know that's you know that's the problem is that uh, some some people make an honest mistake. Uh, yeah, they might be sleeping with two guys, but at the same time, uh, they 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 think the child looks like this person. Uh, they they feel that this person would have been the best father, and therefore they've convinced themselves that he is the father. So I mean, I I think it's bad form because uh, it, it embarrasses the woman. Because guess what? For instance, I've had women come on who have accused guys of being the father, and they're not the father, and they bring on a second guy, a third guy, a fourth guy. And people, you know, people look at that upon, you know, this, this woman's just out of control. I mean, she was just sleeping with so many guys, and I think differently. I think, you know, she's, she's got a lot of courage to come on this show and embarrass herself time after time just to look for the person who could be the father of her child. You know, I just look on it differently. I, I, I think you just, you just try to use your human instincts and, and, and hope for the best in a story. You know, it really is something, more. Like, for instance, when, when did that idea for that concept first, whose idea was that? And do you remember the first paternity show that you did? Well, this is, this is the way I remember it. Uh, I didn't, you know, and believe it or not, I mean, I have to... Uh, I have to say that, that the themes of uh, the paternity test and the lie detector test, once we started, it, it kick-started the show. I mean, it, it got our numbers higher. And, and obviously, during sweeps weeks, which are right around the corner now, like February and November, I mean, you know about ratings months. You try to get the best guest you possibly can you during ratings months. And we know that we have to do these shows because they get the best numbers. But what happened the first time when my producer back then suggested it, and I'm, I'm, I'm there and I'm being debriefed on the first lie detector show and the paternity show. And so I'm going over the story. I'm learning about the guests and everything. And the producer is about to tell me, you know, and, and, and the result is, and I said, you know, I, I, I don't want to know the result. Ooh, I want to ask you about that. Yeah, I don't want to know the result. I don't want to know anything more than my guests know, than my live audience knows, or my audience at home knows. Why would I want to know more than they do? Because if I did, then I would ask questions because I knew the answers. So I would skew the questions. I don't want to know anything more than what my audience and guests know. And, and you know, it it's, goes back to what I believe a uh, 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 talk show host should be, and that is an extension of the audience. I, I want to be an advocate for the audience. I want to ask the questions that the audience would ask. I want to be able to react the way the audience reacts. So when I give that answer, and that's when the whole inflection of, you know, you are the father or you are not the father, guess what? I'm as surprised as, as the people who are watching the show. So in other words, you find out the same time we all find exactly. out. Exactly. 
And more to that point about the inflection, this is really interesting because I, I could talk to you for an entire podcast about that one theme, but there's so many more things I want to talk to you about. But I know you've also said this, that you're going to be remembered for two lines. Yeah. You are the father right. and you are not yeah. the father, yeah. if that's the case. And more, you've had a really colorful career and there's still so much more ahead. But if that is the case, are you good with that, being remembered for those two things? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, uh, you know, I've, I've. I've done a lot of things uh, in the last, uh, you know, 60-odd years in this business. And, you know, I was in straight news for a long time. I was a reporter and, and an anchor in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia and New York. Um, I've done a lot of different things. I mean, I produced an Academy Award short documentary. I mean, I, I've done a lot of things. And, and so as long as Connie Chung knows it, I don't care. <laughs> you have done, an, I mean, you've done a million things. Dick Wolf also you worked with. You've had an amazing career, which is why I asked the question. Now, the one thing, you've spent the better part of two decades trying to determine whether or not this person is the father. Right. Never a question about your father. He was a legendary sports columnist for the Washington Post, Shirley Povich. What was your dad like, and what was it like growing up as his son? Well, it, it, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, I kind of learned at his knee. Um, uh, I was so fortunate as a kid. I mean, at six and seven years old, I was a spring training bat boy for the old Washington Senators in the 1940s and early 50s. I mean, I met guys like uh, uh, Ted Williams and Stan Musial, uh, Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. I, I mean, I, I met those kids and they uh, met those people, and they always looked on me as Shirley's kid. Uh, I went to sporting events with my father all over the country. Uh, I I kind of learned everything about journalism from him. Uh, he was so loved and respected. I'd say that, uh, for instance, in your time, I'd say, you know, Red Smith and Jim Murray and my father probably were the pre, uh, probably the, the the top three sports writers of the 20th century. In fact, uh, you're you you know you're in L.A. and so. You knew Jim Murray and 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 what he did, and and Jim always thought as my uh, of my father as his big brother. Right. So I, uh, I mean, I I just learned I wanted to I wanted to be a sports writer, but because the Washington Post had a nepotism policy, uh, they wouldn't hire me. And the then Washington Star and Washington D.C. Uh, since I was a Povich, they weren't going to hire me. And so I worked for a legendary sportscaster named Bob Wolf, and that's how I got into sports broadcasting, and that's how I started. I started as a sports broadcaster. <laughs> it's amazing. And you I mean, mentioned, I, yeah, and the only reason I got out of that was back in the old days in the early 1970s, I'm covering the Washington Redskins, and George Allen's the coach, and I'm in the locker room one day, and I'm, I'm doing sports, and I'm also doing talk shows, but uh, I... I, I was in the locker room one day, and he's having a news conference. And I, I said to the coach, I said, uh, Coach, I said, what are these pills in this bottle for, uh -huh. this big bottle of pills? Who the hell knows? They could have been salt pills. And he looked at me, and he said, Mari, are you with me or against me? Are wow. you with the Redskins or against the Redskins? And I said to myself, i got to get out of sports. <laughs> wow. Wow, that, that's an amazing story. That's an amazing story. So you mentioned Jim Murray, and Maury, Jim Murray was larger than life. And the fact that he thought of your father 
as somebody he could look up to, really speaks to who your father was and what he represented. One quick thought. You mentioned Ted Williams. You mentioned Joe DiMaggio. Right. These were two amazing, amazing players, but generally distrustful of the press, didn't exactly. get along with the press. How did they do with your dad? Well, it's very interesting that you mentioned that because in my in the way I've looked at it and the way I've done some research in the past on it, Ted Williams loved my father. First of all, he was out of town. In other words, out of Boston. So therefore, he didn't have to deal with Williams every day the way the Boston writers did. And the Boston, Williams hated the Boston writers. And the same thing with DiMaggio. DiMaggio was a very, uh, when it came to the press, very shy, very standoffish, didn't want anything to do with the press. But, you know, the, the visiting guys were a little different. So he trusted my father. And so when DiMaggio or Williams wanted to get something out, wanted the, the country to know, wanted the sports fans to know something, they would talk to my father, and my father would break the story. And strangely enough, you're so right, they didn't even care for each other. Mm. But it didn't matter, because they wanted, they wanted to get their side out of it, and they did it through my father. You know, Maury, it's, it's very clear how much you love Shirley and what he how much respect you had for him and what he accomplished. I know that my father, my father passed away when he was 59 and I was just getting my first big breaks in radio and he was in a different business altogether, but he, he was not shy about telling me what he thought that I should do with my show. Right. But what about Shirley? What are, well, did he talk to you about your show? Well, you know, he, it's very interesting. I, I started doing a show called a current affair and that was my first big hit nationwide. And that was in the mid eighties and it became a really big tabloid journalism show. And I was working for Rupert Murdoch. He, he, it was, it was on a Fox. It was the Fox Show, and it was before Fox had uh, its uh, all news channel. It was before Fox News started, and so uh, I got a lot of notoriety. And so uh, the Washington Post had a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning television critic named Tom Shales. Sure. And so Shales writes a story one day, and he just. Oh my God! Does he go? I mean, he goes after me. He he called me every S word in the world: sordid, smarmy, you know, everything except shitty. And and so I called up my father and I said to my father, I said, Dad, I mean, I know you're going to read the paper I, this morning. I said the shales really lit in lit, lit into me today. Don't show it to mom. Don't don't do this. This is really. This is really bad. And he said, son, don't worry about it. Just go about your business. I said, yeah, Dad, but, but this is really bad. He says, you know, I happen to uh, had a role in hiring Tom Shales at the uh. post. I said, yeah, but, Dad, I'm your son. He says, yeah, but good writers are hard to find. <laughs> Incredible. Oh, that is great. That is super. That is super. It kind of reminds me. So too. he took it that way. I mean, he, he was that way. One time I had him on the air when I, years ago when I was doing sports. And uh, Bob Foster was a light heavyweight champion, sure. and uh, he was making a fight in Washington, and the, and the guy he was fighting couldn't make the limit, couldn't make the, the, the 175-pound uh, uh, limit. And so my father was on the show to explain all this, and I said, I said Dad, I said, uh, uh, have you ever seen anything like this where a guy can't make the weight at the last minute? And he goes on and talks about something. I said, but you didn't answer my question. And my father said, it wasn't worthy of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Great. That is something else. He's tough. He was tough. He mentioned Carter Fair. He was, but he was good. And, and you know, uh, the best part about it, Jim, and you, I understand about your dad and everything, the best part about it was, and when I think about this, I'm so happy because he always thought that, that I would never really be 
uh, financially successful, he said, you know, money just burns a hole in your pocket and just you'll never be able to save. You'll never, you, you just spend everything you get. And I know you. And so when I was very successful later on, and he's in his, he's in now close to 90, and uh, I didn't want him to worry about me anymore. So I sent up, he, he's from Maine, and he summered in his old house in Maine where his parents lived. And so I sent an airplane to pick him and my mom up one day. And he looked at me when I got, when it stopped for Connie and me in New York, and I got on the plane, and he looked at me and he said, I'm sitting here with this big table in front of me, and I'm reading my newspapers, and I'm looking at you, and I'm not going to worry about you and money anymore. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> so as long as I could have had that a few years before he died, I said, you know, I just wanted him to know that. God, more, I understand that so well. I understand that so well that he, in the very end, that he knew that, and you were able to send the plane for him. Right. Of course, what you could have said, it kind of ease his uh, conscience a little bit. You could have said, look, Dad, you know I married rich. Yeah, I know. You know I married rich. I know. He you did know. say when we got married that I married up. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you, you mentioned Connie. Here's something great about you and Connie. Connie, you and Connie have a place in Montana in the Flathead Valley. Right. Now, we no longer do, Maury, but my wife and I had a place in Big Sky for a number oh, of years. Oh, you did? Yes. Oh, so as somebody from Los Angeles, we were just awed by Montana. How often do the two of you get back to Montana, and what do you like best about it? Well, we, we get there a lot, and, and we're going to start going there even more so. I'd say we I, I'd say we spend two to three months a year there, and we're going to continue to do that and even make it even more. And what we did, believe it or not, in the Flathead Valley, I mean, this is how bad I am, Jim, I mean, in terms of financial advisors and things like that. Connie and I started a newspaper, a, a, a weekly newspaper called the Flathead Beacon, uh, about 11 years ago, and it's uh, won every single major award in Montana as the best newspaper in the state, and we are very excited, and the people have accepted it so much, and you know, people in Montana, as you know, you know, they wear their political stripes on their arms, and yet... Uh, Everybody, no matter who, what their political affiliation is, loves the Flathead Beacon. And so, I mean, we're very attached to that community up there next to Canada in the northwest part of Montana. And so we just, you know, we just love it. Uh, uh, I mean, you know what the skies are like there. I mean, they don't quit. I mean, they just, they just endless. No, there's nothing like it. You know, you mentioned the Flathead Beacon, more the fact that your father was a newspaper man, you've got that in your blood. Given the state of the newspaper industry as it is right now, what's it mean to the two of you to be able to do something like that, to take on a project like that? Well, what, what you have to do, you can be successful, I think, today in, in that business. Uh, first of all, you have to do more than just print. You have to have a great website. You have to have a lot of social media going on. We also own uh, uh, a magazine called Flathead Living, which is a glossy uh, four times a year magazine. And we also uh, create websites for our for our uh, for our advertisers. Uh, we do a lot of their social media. So you have to do all kinds of things to make it work. But the key is you got to be hyper local. And if you're hyper local and do stories that nobody else is doing. Then the people will come there, and they want to be, and they want to be able to, to view the website and read the paper. Hey, now it's 2019. Are you still doing things the old way at work? 
New year, new you, right? So start the year off right by replacing that software that causes you angst and agony every single day. You know what I'm talking about. You know the one. You can find software you love that fits your business needs using Captera.com. Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. So join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Even I had to come to grips. This is not 1999. It's 2019. I've got a couple of hundred affiliates. That base is growing. I have to stay buttoned up and in contact with them. And Captera helps me do that. You should do the same. Go to captera.com slash Rome for free today. Find the right tools to make 2019 the year for your business. Again, captera.com slash Rome. Captera, C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A.com slash Rome. Captera.com slash Rome. Because I grew up in Los Angeles. I remember when sure. she was in Los Angeles and she just was always so classy, so smart. And so great. Now, I don't know, Maury, but the two of you have been married for more than 30 years, and I've seen power couples where you have two people who are fiercely ambitious. It doesn't always work because some are so competitive that inevitably they start to compete with one another, sick yeah. as it sounds. Did the two of you ever experience that on any level? It doesn't well, seem like it, but was it hard ever? Well, it, it was it – was, there, there, was there was a moment in time where it was kind of awkward, and it was a moment where – I had left Washington. I had worked in Washington for a long time. I was very kind of successful, but I wanted to know whether, you know, does it work just in one town or could I go somewhere else? So I went to Chicago briefly to work for the NBC station there, and it didn't work out. And then all of a sudden, I get a job. Now, Connie started out in Washington, D.C., at my television station, but she was like the assistant to the news director, and so the first right, the first job that comes up in television news is a weekend writing job. So she wanted that job, and the uh, and and the news director says, "No, no, no, you're my assistant, you can't do." It. No, no, no. She said, "No, I want that job." And and the news director said, "Okay, you have to replace yourself." She walked out of the newsroom, across the street, into the bank next door, <laughs> looked at the first woman teller, said, "You want to be in TV? Come oh, with me." Wow. And that's how she replaced herself, and that's when everybody before then we didn't know much about her. That's when we said, "This is one aggressive person right here." Wow. So fast forward about. Six or seven years later, she became a big reporter for Walter Cronkite, and she went out to L.A. to become uh, one of the best anchors in that city. And she uh, worked at KNXT, the CBS station, the own station there, and she became a big star. Now, fast forward, I'm not working too well in Chicago, and the next thing you know, I am, uh, uh, I'm her second banana news in Los Angeles at that station. I'm her, you know, her co-anchor, and she's the big star. Guy hires me, the general manager. Six months later, he's fired. The new general manager comes in, and I'm fired six months later. Now, for the first time in my life, I am, uh, I am absolutely out of a job. And she took pity on me, and then she ends up being uh, my girlfriend because she took pity on me. And that that's is great. How it started. That is something else. That is something else. And when you mentioned the current affair, now this was a big time, big time, big time TV show which you hosted. But Rupert Murdoch called you to New York and he pitched you on the show. What do you remember about that meeting and what was he like to work for? Well, it, all of a sudden, I get a call. I'm, I'm anchoring the, the then Fox 10 o'clock news in Washington. And then uh, I get this call, show up in New York. 
and then all of a sudden, uh, I, uh, I, 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 I'm supposed to go to New York. My news director says, go there. Mr. Murdoch wants to see. I said, I don't even know Mr. Murdoch. Just go. So I go up there, and he looks at me. He says, I want to start this show called A Current Affair. Uh, I want to put you together with a bunch of my friends from Australia. They've done shows down there. And we're going to call it A Current Affair. I said, yeah, but I'm your anchor man in Washington. He says, no. Don't. First of all, you're commuting with your wife. You'll find out if you can live together. She's working in New York. You're in Washington. You'll find out if you can live together this summer. And if, you, uh, if it doesn't work out, you'll go back to Washington and continue to be my anchor down there. I said, what is this, like some summer camp or something? <laughs> I mean, what's good? And so we were, I was thrown together with all these crazy Australians, and they were absolutely spectacular. I mean, we created one of the biggest tabloid journalism shows ever, and they were just fearless. I mean, they had the whole attitude about stories. They said, we, don't, we knock on doors, we don't knock on the grass. And it was just phenomenal for me, and I worked there for five years, and then I left to do talk. And and the rest is history. Was David Hill one of those crazy Aussies? David was he involved was in that? right there at the end. David came. David was the best because David had worked for Rupert in Australia, and then he came up came up to to do the whole uh, Fox Sports. He created the whole spot uh, Fox Sports division. And David, uh, it's actually David hired me one time to do a big uh, a, a, a big one time uh, live two-hour event. We all went to the pyramids and opened up a brand new mummy. (laughs) (laughs) David hired me for that. We've been friends ever since. He he is a super colorful, charismatic guy. Oh, wow. And and and, and he's he's the typical, archetypical Australian. I mean, they got Ideas coming out of their head every 30 seconds. I mean, oh, no, I'll never forget, he put me in front of the, the grease board. He had me upstairs to his office once on the Fox lot and started to lay out what was then going to be the best damn sports show. And you're right, he was just going crazy with the ideas. I remember, Maury, he put me on a show on Fox Sports Net with Kevin Frazier, who's done really well also in the entertainment business. Right. And I did the show, and I remember he pulled me aside after the first episode, and he said, hey, hey, mate, listen, you need to loosen up now. Why don't you have a shot of bourbon before you go on the air? <laughs> Imagine an executive saying, and I think he meant it too. Oh, I think no he question. Really meant it. Oh, no question. I mean, with with these Aussie producers, we'd go across the street at the bar called the Racing Club. We'd sit down there and write the stories, and then go over and do the stories. Mm. And, and we'd write the prom- the thirty second pro- topical promotion for the show at the bar. I mean, these guys, these Aussies. I mean, they could really drink. I mean, it could really. I mean, the thing was, I mean, they could sit down there. One evening, drink 12 beers, nothing. You give them one vodka, and they're shit-faced. <laughs> Great. Great. <laughs> they went hard. They went. Those guys went hard. They played hard, and they took oh, it seriously. Yeah. Maury, before you go, I've got to ask you about your golf game. You're a serious, yeah. serious golfer. How are you hitting them right now? Well, I mean, I'm okay. I mean, look, it's very, you know, I, I used to be a scratch golfer. Uh, uh, Connie is really responsible. Uh, I was just a... Uh, country club player uh i played you know basketball football baseball in high school and so i was a pretty good athlete and and, and that got me through and, and when i once finally joined a golf club i i was probably a five or six handicap and i won some club championships and then at the age of 50 uh connie said you know for your 50th birthday i'm going to buy I'm, I'm doing this research and i'm going to find the best golf teacher i had never had a lesson 
and so she found uh, this guy, and he uh, and he came to my home on on the weekend in, in New Jersey when I turned fifty. And believe it or not, that's thirty years ago. And and uh, his name is Peter Costas, right. and been attached at his hip ever since. So we we worked hard, and and then finally at around. He said, you know, he said, you can play competitive golf. And I said, well, I said, what do you mean? He says, he said, no, you can play on a national level. And I said, oh, come on, Peter. I mean, he said, oh, yeah. And so I used to play a lot of golf with Peter and Gary McCord. And then, believe it or not, in the next 10 years, I got myself to the point where I qualified for the United States Senior Amateur, and I made match play uh, in that tournament, and I played in three British Senior Amateurs. But then, you know, once you get to be 70, it's different. Oh, the only thing I wanted to do was I wanted to shoot my age before I turned 70, and I was able to do that. Now I'm so goddamn old that if I shoot my age, I, I'm pissed. <laughs> that is absolutely amazing. When you're playing the game, that's rarefied air. More When you play in those tournaments at that level, is there anything more thrilling? I mean, how do you, how do you compare that to, like, your professional career? Is it even I mean, better? I, th- I, it was, I mean, it's great because because most of the guys I play against, I mean, they're they're former U.S. amateur champions, mid amateur champions, they're they're senior amateur champions. You know, some of them tried to turn pro at a while and then they didn't. I mean, I still, I mean, I can't hit it anywhere near these guys that are. I mean, I play a lot of uh, I play a lot around, not a lot of rounds. I practice a lot with Paul Casey because he's Peter's student. I mean, these guys hit it, you know, 80 to 100 yards past me, and I don't give a shit. No. Well, I still have fun. You betcha. So listen. And by the way, I am, for all you your golfing friends out there, I'm telling you right now, I didn't believe this, but last week I did it for the first time. I putted with the pin in the hole, and I think it's an advantage. You like that? Yeah. Okay. I really believe that if you putt it with the pin in the hole, I, I was a disbeliever, but I actually believe that the stick, slows the ball down uh, to fall in the hole. I really do. All right, then. And I also think on longer putts, you have a better look at the hole. Oh, I think there's no doubt about that. So give me, before you go, how about a favorite foursome? Knowing who you know (laughs) and knowing who you've played with, and I'm sure it's come up before, if you had to, if you had to pick an actual foursome that you were a part of, who would it be? What's your favorite? Well, I'll tell you, in fantasy land, okay, Okay. it would be my father and me and Tiger and Bobby Jones and everybody's able to hit the same equipment. Yeah, yeah. That would be it. Right. That would be enough. And I, I played with Tiger in the past, and, you know, I'm a big fan anyway, so. How about the, what was it like playing with Tiger? Well, it's interesting. I played with him a couple of times. I played with him, I played with him right before his first U.S. Open at Shinnecock. It's got to be like 96 or 97. And, uh... We went to a course next door called the National, which is a old you bet. Uh, CB McDonald course in in Long Island, and it's kind of, it's all the best holes of Scotland laid out in one course. And uh, I played with Tiger and Earl, and uh, it was uh, and, and a fellow named Terry McBride, the late Terry McBride, sure. who was the club championship at National. And uh, it was a cloudy day. He. Tiger hit a three iron on the first hole. It's a par four. No, he had a driver on the first hole, which is a par four. He hit in the green side bunker on his tee shot, got up and down for birdie. He never hit another driver on the front nine. He was five under after nine. We had to leave after 13 because it rained, and we all had dinner together. 
And uh, I, I, I marveled at him because he had never seen this course before. There must have been six or seven blind shots, and the guy was five under after nine. And then I also played with him as a, uh, in a practice round at Spanish Bay at the AT&T with Kevin Costner a couple of years later. And uh, it, it, was, it was, you know, one of those, uh, Butch Harmon was his coach then, and uh, so we're all walking around, and Butch says to me, he says, this kid, you, you have to understand about this kid. This kid has the best short game I've ever seen in my life, and he demonstrated it that day. I mean, I was hitting six irons. He was hitting six irons when I was hitting three woods. Crazy. Crazy. Boy, you, Butch used to come on the show back in the day. He was so fun, Maury. So finally then, if, and I so appreciate your time, if Connie got you a, a lesson with Peter Costas for your 50th. Right. And she popped out of a cake on your 25th hundred episode. <laughs> yeah. What did she do for your 80th birthday? Well, I, I tell you, uh, uh, in between, I mean, believe it or not, I, I, uh, uh, I decided uh, on my 80th to just uh, cool, you know, tone it down. And I took my uh, two daughters uh, who are in their 50s and, our, and Connie and my son, Matthew, he's in. He's uh, 23, and we all went to Florida for for just a soft weekend. But I will tell you that on my 70th birthday, she surprised me with a party at at my at our apartment in New York, and she had this entertainer. And I said, "You got to be kidding me!" And in walks my favorite comedian, Louis Black. Oh wow! And so Louis, who by the way. Is, Another addicted golfer I did not know. And Lewis is saying, I don't understand this. God damn it. I've played <laughs> Carnegie Hall. I've been on Broadway. And I'm playing Povich's 70th birthday party. Are you kidding me? What the hell happened? Yeah, what the fuck happened? <laughs> so, uh, as, as he uses that language all the time. Great. But then Connie wanted to pay him, and he wouldn't take any money. And he ended up being... being uh, Part of the part of the party and had dinner with us and part and and and, and Connie says okay Lewis if you won't take any money Peter Costas is here and Peter Costas will give you free lessons oh, for life wow and believe it or not next Wednesday I'm going to Scottsdale on Sunday to have a refresher lesson and Lewis is going to be there for his annual lesson on Wednesday absolutely incredible man what a life what an amazing life but. You've earned it all, more. I, I well, can't even tell you how much I appreciate you and that you could find time for a podcast like this. Well, it's my pleasure. My I man, mean, you, I, look, I have admired you for a long time. You, 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 you're in a the toughest game of all, and you know, and that and that's sports talk shows and talk shows in general. I mean, I have so much regard for you, and not only for you, but the, all of you all who 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 do it. I mean, I. My my dear friend Tony Kornheiser has a podcast, and that's another goddamn bad deal I'm in because we own a restaurant together in Washington. I mean, <laughs> restaurants and newspapers. And guess what they did for my 80th birthday, Romy? What? You will not believe this. Tell me. My wife and my friends got together and are buying me two racehorses. Oh, no. Hey, 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 now, hey, Maury, no, no. I mean, you, you're successful in that business. 
I, on the other hand, the one thing I stayed away from all my life was racehorses, and now I'm in that goddamn business. More God, that, that's a whole podcast onto itself. What the hell is the matter with you and I both? I've also invested in restaurants and gotten my my clock cleaned. <laughs> and can I tell you, Morty, we've had two. We had a Breeders' Cup champion twice. I and know I had, you did. But, 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 you don't hear about the ones that don't do well. We've gotten our asses kicked. So we've done well. <laughs> And we've also lost. So, do you have the horses? Have they started running yet? We haven't done it yet. Uh, a guy named uh, Dale Capuano, who's a big trainer in Maryland, and he uh, and, he, and we're going to stable these two horses here. They're not going to be big ones. We have enough money to buy a couple of uh, a couple of uh, claimers, uh, high claimers, and, and enough money for him to go to a yearling sale and buy some. I think, and more, I think you'll love it. I'll be really curious to see what I'll it's like you know, for you. Please let me I know. Mean, you, you've been to the top of the mountain. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to get to a half mile track. Yeah, you know what though? I can't wait to talk to you about it. I can't wait to hear how it goes. So I think that that's great. That is tremendous. More, you are a freaking treasure. I love <laughs> you. I love you. It's so good to have you Thanks on. Thank so you much, so much for doing it, Maury. Appreciate it. In sports, there are smart moves, and then there are some not-so-smart moves, like calling a timeout to kill the clock and get your offense right. That's smart. But calling a timeout with no timeouts left? Now, that's not smart. The same is true when you're hiring. There are smart and not-so-smart ways, like job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. That's not smart. The smart way? Letting ZipRecruiter find people with the right skills and actively inviting them to apply. It is why it's rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on Trustpilot rating of hiring sites with at least 1,000 reviews. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com clones. ZipRecruiter.com slash C-L-O-N-E-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash clones. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Maury Povich, you are an awesome podcast guest. My thanks to the one and only legend of daytime TV, Maury Povich, for an awesome, awesome conversation. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. Like I always say, this is what the podcast is all about. Long-form conversations with outside-the-box guests that need that kind of space to get loose. It's already been a strong start to 2019 in the way of the pod. Boomer Esiason, Pat Perez, now Maury Povich. This thing is not slowing down. It's gaining momentum. It's picking up speed, which is why you need to be subscribed. After you subscribe, make sure to leave a review and then tell somebody about the pod. I appreciate you all doing that very much. I'm on the road to Atlanta next week, but that does not mean that we will not have a killer F68 for you coming up. So make sure you look for that and get subscribed right now if you haven't done so already. Until then, here are some voicemails to close out this episode. We'll catch you next time. I'm out. First new message. Hi, Jim. This is Denise. We met a long time ago in Oakland at a meet and greet. I'd like to bring out the situation with Adam Gase's eyes. He might have an underlying thyroid problem. So I hate to see people make fun of that. Message saved. Next message. Adam Gase, what the hell was up with him, man? Uh, only time I've ever seen somebody's eyes wandering like that is when uh, Steve Garvey and his serial philandering ways was uh, in a stadium. Holy hell. Mix in a volume or something, dude. Gase, you look like a freak. Message deleted. Next message. Romy Rome. What's up, man? It's Doug in Phoenix. You know what? Number five's Reacher, four Wick, Jason Bourne, 
John McClane, number one. Your lawyer's right, buddy. It's James Bond. No matter who the actor is, Bond is one. And there's one thing that separates Bond from everyone else. He gets a lot of p- Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, Rome, Rome. My name is Roger Arrolano, calling from Whittier. So I've been listening to you for a long, long time. I just have one question. Where is or what happened to Terrence in Sierra Madre? Message saved. Next message. Jimmy, what's up? This is David in Buffalo jumping in here with a quick take on uh, the championship games from yesterday. I mean, to me, those reminded me of the old-school smack-offs when guys like the Cavalin Asian, Iafrady, Terrence, Joe from Orange County, these guys would do battle. It was controversial. It was epic. It was memorable. We'll never forget it. Message saved. Next message. Rome, John in New York. Got to be kidding me with that play calling by Sean Payne at the end of the game. Took a play straight out of Pete Carroll's Super Bowl book. What an ass. Message deleted. Next message. Do you like crushed ice cubes or cubed ice cubes? Thank you. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jimmy. It's Dr. Dave. Holy shit, what a podcast with Pat Perez. That was an awesome story about his wife, but how the hell did he land her? I got to agree with Brad and Corona on something. He must have, like, the same kind of crank that Grant Napier has. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, this is Corey from Oregon again, Romy. You're the man, baby. Pat Perez is legit. That's that's what kind of interview you get when you talk to a real dude. Russell Wilson is to an interview what Carl Lewis was to the national anthem. Uh-oh. Message deleted. Next message. What up, Rome? Just checking out Twitter right now. Everybody's wondering about Hawk's baby. I guess uh, Hawk didn't, um, he threw out his back again, huh? See that? All right. Will he be in on Monday? Let's find out. Hashtag, where's Hawk? Message deleted. You have no more messages.